I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. Before we get started, I want to let you know that we'll be talking about eating disorder behaviors pretty candidly in this episode. If you find that topic triggering, please feel free to skip this one. Risking your health just isn't worth it. What was your first impression of Balanchine, like the first time you actually saw him in person? Most of it was first hearsay because there was such a cult around all of it in the school, of course. It was an insular world into which we were permitted to enter and chosen. And so I don't even know really what that first impression could have been other than nervous anticipation and excitement and a desire to be seen. Stephanie Saland is a former dancer. When she stepped into Balanchine's school for the first time, he was in his mid-60s. Stephanie was 14. And she knew the only way to dance for Balanchine in his company was to train in his school, the School of American Ballet. People were not taken from the outside. We had to go through the school for at least two or three years, even to be considered for the company. Nobody ever came from the outside. We always had to be an insider. It was definitely a unique situation in that way. And getting into that school wasn't easy to do. Do you remember your first day at the School of American Ballet? I first remember my audition. I think I went in 68. It was a private audition. And I went in, and I was 14 and a half, and I only had had occasional classes, and I was told to bring point shoes. I didn't have point shoes. I'd never been on point. Stephanie didn't know a lot of the names of the steps. So Diana Adams, a famous Balanchine dancer who'd retired from the stage and was running the school, demonstrated every step for her. And she showed me everything. I imitated her by all standards of what I understand now. I was extremely unsophisticated and it was terrifying 
I came out and she came to my mother and she said, well, she's years behind. I'll put her in with the 11-year-olds. It's unlikely that it's going to work. Wow. But she does have some turnout. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. 14-year-old Stephanie towered over the 11-year-olds in her class, but it didn't deter her. I loved to move. I loved to dance. I was fascinated by where I was, and I was enchanted by the people around me. Stephanie didn't know what she was doing, but she imitated well. She could copy the other students and replicate the movement, even when she didn't know what step came next, or even what it was called. And three months later, I was moved up. It was exciting, and I thought everybody was the most beautiful creatures on the earth that I'd ever seen. And they were so talented. So I'd come home, report about all these people I'd seen and how beautiful they were. And also, there's something about being elite. You know, I'm just going to say that as much as I don't like to say that about being chosen an elite. You know, there's this um, ego. Part of your sense of self recognizes that you are being selected and selected in a particular arena where it is so super refined and quite close to the outside world. We were christened, we were graced to be allowed in the school and allowed to be in that studio and allowed to be in relationship to that organization, to the organization. It's like when you first fall in love and you feel like you're the person. Oh my God, it's me. How can that not be thrilling? From iHeart Podcasts and Rococo Punch, this is The Turning Room of Mirrors. I'm Erica Lance. Part 3. Risk All. When Stephanie started at the School of American Ballet, she was entering something big. New York was in the middle of what came to be known as the dance boom. In the 60s and 70s, New York was a hub for all kinds of dance. I was going to two or three performances a week. Dance historian Lynn Garofola remembers being at the start of her career as a critic and writer in the 70s. It seemed like everyone was talking about dance. There were performances everywhere. Tickets were still relatively cheap. There were ballet companies coming from many different places. So I think there was this sense of energy and possibility. And at the center of this movement was Balanchine. By then, he'd been in the U.S. for 30 years. He'd built a ballet school and a ballet company. As far as the dance world was concerned, he'd become the Shakespeare of neoclassical ballet. And audiences got to watch him write his masterpieces right in front of them. Balanchine and the New York City Ballet became really one of the preeminent artistic institutions. These were just one of the preeminent cultural moments in New York City. This is historian Jim Steichen. He got people who aren't necessarily into ballet to care about ballet. He made ballet something that was 
on TV on a regular basis. He turned certain ballerinas into cultural icons that girls wanted to emulate and inspired them to study ballet. One thing I would like to say is that it's pretty clear when you read all the reviews, beginning in the late 60s, 1970s, into the 1980s, that Balanchine is portrayed as someone who could do no wrong. Even when he does a really terrible ballet, the language is kind of nice. <laughs> I, I mean, you read some of those things, it's like he could do no wrong. It's like he was a god. Balanchine was ever-present in the school. He could walk into any class any day and wait to see what would catch his eye. As the world around her worshipped Balanchine, Stephanie Saland was still a teenager, hoping to join his company someday. One day, she was asked to be part of these performances they called lecture demos, where students would go to public schools to demonstrate ballet. First, they had to learn the choreography. There were three couples dancing. Stephanie and her partner were in the back, behind the lead couple. I wasn't very good at ballet in my mind. Not yet. She remembers that day, a talented dancer named Fernando Bojones was there, sitting on the studio floor at the front. And then Balanchine walked in. She'd never met him before. And I thought, well, nobody looks at the people in the back. And I thought, well, he's not watching me. Balanchine's not watching me, so it really doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want back here. And Fernando said, well, he didn't take his eyes off of you for one minute. (laughs) You know, by the time he saw me, I don't know how old he was, He had seen so many dancers. He'd lived such a long life. If you spark his curiosity, that's a good thing. He never wanted to be told who to like. And very often, in fact, I think he went the other way. So if the heads of the schools who were his Russian colleagues at the time would say, we like this and this and this person, likely he would turn his head and look for somebody else. Balanchine wanted good dancers, But Stephanie says he was also looking for someone unformed, someone still raw. Somebody who who doesn't quite have it all and he could shape them, he could form them. She doesn't quite know what she's doing, but there's something. And it was very, what you say, Shavian, Pygmalion, a little bit, you know, Eliza Doolittle. There's perhaps a sculpture in that marble. He could make 60 mistakes and one was going to come out of full sculpture. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was basically how he saw it. And he even would talk about, you know, it could be a field of grass, but one flower. Could Stephanie be that flower? Stephanie quickly learned how much the School of American Ballet was about Balanchine and his choreography. People were trained to hone his particular sensibilities, even his ethics, so that there would be a readiness, uh, definitely a readiness in all of us to fall right into the company, efficient and ready to be useful immediately, ready to execute and embody his visions. Usually when you're a teenager, you don't meet the one person who will make all of your career decisions. 
but that's kind of what Balanchine was. Balanchine was basically the be-all, end-all answer to the rest of your life, dance-wise. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. As a student, Stephanie Saland learned there were many expectations for dancers at the School of American Ballet. Some explicit, some so ingrained in the culture, they didn't have to be said aloud. There's a certain stringent criteria for body types and adhering to those body types. There were criteria that were very, very clear and in no uncertain terms. What were the criteria? Generally, long limb, tall, long neck, small heads. That was understood. Fair skin. I think I've even heard something like when you slice an apple open, that kind of the whiteness of the fruit. There were certainly exceptions, but that was it. It's well documented that Balanchine had a preference for pale, thin dancers. For dancers he loved, he'd praise them with phrases like alabaster princess or pale skin that reflected the light. He had a lot of opinions about dancers' bodies. Here he is in a 1963 interview on WNYC talking about how he evaluates female dancers, specifically girls. He starts by comparing the pros and cons of two girls' bodies. One girl is tall, 
It's very, very tall with beautiful legs and fantastic extension. Wonderful, but doesn't turn as fast. And has a beautiful expression, marble face, you know, almost like angel, you see. Where another girl is short. The other one would be shorter, with shorter legs, dark face. She can't jump very high and stretch her legs, but she could be very faster and maybe uh, her ability to express with the face. Maybe she exceeds the first in terms of artistic expression. I mean, they're all different animals. Balanchine says you can't say who is better. It's like to say what's better, um, leopard or jaguar or lion or a pussycat or a dog. He had animals and images for everyone, one dancer said. She was a porcupine, her friend a delicious mushroom. Whether this was playful or dehumanizing, it's hard to tell. But if you made the cut, it might have been because of your idiosyncrasies, your individual style. It might be a shimmer of something Balanchine could mold into a timeless sculpture. When Balanchine choreographs, it's like, it fits like a glove, you know, it's like it's meant for you. And that's so special. It's, it's a glove that fits. Deborah Austin entered the school as a shy 13-year-old. She'd always depended on dance to draw her out of her cocoon. Then she found herself vying for a position with Balanchine's company. They told my parents that most likely I would never get into the New York City Ballet because I would not fit in. The message came from a teacher at the school that she would not fit in because of the color of her skin, because she's black. They said she could never dance in the corps de ballet, the group of dancers you often see dancing behind the soloists, because she wouldn't match. You know, I would have to be a soloist if that was possible. And I'm looking at them at 13 years old thinking, I know I have talent, but I'm not uh, a soloist. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Jumping from student to soloist seemed impossible. But Deborah wanted to dance. For me, it was like there was not going to be a no. I mean, I was going to achieve this on my own merit, no matter what color I was, no matter what I did. You had to sparkle something for him to be interested in you. I mean, just being there was not exactly ideal. <laughs> you had to really show your worth. Balanchine had been watching her, and she did get in. At age 16, she was the first Black female dancer admitted into the company. She danced in the core in Swan Lake, a role she'd been told she could never dance. And she danced soloist roles, one that Balanchine specifically choreographed for her. He was so kind, just the way he took your hand and said, come here, dear, you know, yet you were still scared of him. <laughs> at least I was. He could be tough, but he was a father figure, you know, to some of us, and we were his disciples. I think he cared more about individuality than he cared about a look. I think he cared about how you were as an artist. I really don't believe that there was a specific type. 
that he wanted. I mean, supposedly he wanted the skin tone to be the color of a fresh peeled apple. My skin color was not the color of a freshly peeled apple by no stretch of the imagination. <laughs> so there you have it. <laughs> Still, the reality was that Balanchine's company was almost entirely white. For the nine years Deborah danced at the New York City Ballet, she was the only black female dancer there. I might have paved something. I, I, I literally made a driveway, but I was there for nine years by myself. It might have hindered me, you know, in some ways because of what I was told when I was younger. I feel like I wanted to fit in deep down inside, possibly. I went back into my cocoon in myself for many years in the company. Deborah believes that Balanchine didn't have one type in mind that he was open to many kinds of dancers. And this is one of those areas where Balanchine seems to hold opposites at the same time. Did he want dancers to conform to his aesthetics, or did he value variety? What was clear was that being thin was important. I mean, I just wanted to be thinner because I knew being thinner was going to get me parts and he was going to like me more. And you want it so badly, you know, to please him and... He used to call us all brioches because we were all like the young and our bodies changed from being these skinny little things to like becoming women. But he wanted us thinner than we probably were being pubescent young girls. Now I look at pictures of myself when I was younger in those photographs and I go, oh my God, they called me fat? Like, how is that even possible? We were definitely indoctrinated with a certain aesthetic that was known as the Balanchine body. Stephanie and Deborah overlapped at the company. In one piece, they danced back-to-back solos. While Deborah spins off stage in a joyful mix of PK turns and jumps, Stephanie, almost mirroring Deborah, twirls on stage, all length and speed. The preference for very long legs for thin. I did not match that in all moments. I was a little more round than the preferred body. There were times when I was taken out of ballets because of my weight. And this was before it was politically incorrect to address it. So basically I'd just be called fat and pulled out. So I I had those phases and those conflicts and self-deprecation, certainly, and uh, went through them. Some see Balanchine as the person most responsible for changing the expectation of ballerinas' bodies, not just to be slim, but to be absolutely as thin as possible. If you look at photos of the late 19th century ballerinas, they're very, very different from the ballerinas of the 1920s or the 1940s. In the 1950s, Slender dancers all had little shapes. They had waists. No one in New York City Ballet in the late 1960s or 1970s or early 80s had a waist. They were much more straight. And that was what Balanchine apparently wanted. Historian Lynn Garofola points out, it's hard to pin the extreme body standards all on Balanchine. 
in the 1960s and 70s, extreme thinness became uh, apparent across the fashion industry. If one picks up fashion magazines from the mid-1960s on and you see Twiggy, you know, this is a moment when the beauty industry is saying that thinness is really what is beautiful. Either way, Balanchine's dancers were thinner than their predecessors. And Balanchine pressured dancers to lose weight. One time he told a dancer named Heidi Vossler she was too fat to dance the ballet serenade just moments before she had to go on stage and perform it. She was so upset she could barely get through the steps. Another former dancer, Suzanne Farrell, received a letter from Balanchine and included a personal poem and a P.S. that read, quote, I hope by now you are thin and beautiful and light to lift. Suzanne later said she felt frightened and hurt. She wrote, quote, I should have known it. I shouldn't have had to be told. I felt stupid and inadequate, and I was so upset that I proceeded to try to lose weight right there. Thus, my life was now hinging on two big problems, getting my entrance right and losing weight. Suzanne would eventually become Balanchine's most famous dancer, his muse. He was in love with her and her dancing. Soon younger dancers were trying to mold themselves after her. Gelsey Kirkland was one of them. She famously wrote about it in her memoir. Balanchine teased Gelsey for having a big head. Everyone wanted a small head like Suzanne. Gelsey was desperate to look just like her, Balanchine's favorite ballerina. She wrote, quote, He had such an obsession with her face that everybody, all of my friends, were trying to imitate the shape of her mouth. I went to the dentist and said that I want buck teeth. And Gelsey knew she had to be thin. She says Balanchine wrapped his knuckles on her sternum and said, must see bones. He did not merely say, eat less, she says. He repeatedly said, eat nothing. I think I tried harder to please Balanchine than anybody. The physical cost was that it killed you to do it. An interviewer asked her once if Balanchine cared about her body. She said, he cared how it looked, not how it felt. When she was too sick to dance, she writes Balanchine gave her pills. He told her they were vitamins, but later she realized they were amphetamines. Eventually, Gelsey would depend on drugs to get through her performances. And when Balanchine thought that her head was too big for her body, something she says he pointed out to her all the time, she got silicone injections and had her earlobes trimmed. Gelsey said, I starved by day, then binged on junk food and threw up by night. I took injections of pregnant cow's urine, reputed to be a miraculous diet aid. I emptied myself with enemas and steam baths. Anything to mold the body her boss wanted. You might think based on these clearly desperate measures that Gelsey was unappreciated. But actually, no, she was a legend, one of Balanchine's favorites, frequently cast in lead roles. But these were the kinds of measures she felt she had to take. Plenty of dancers resorted to plastic surgery or other extreme measures to stay slim. The pressure was real, and they knew what was required of them. You eat, sleep, and drink ballet. It is first. It's before everything. Dance precedes everything. You give your all. 
After Balanchine noticed Stephanie, he visited her class frequently. Often his eyes were on her. She couldn't understand why. I really was behind, and I really was not capable of delivering the goods consistently. But when I was allowed to do whatever I wanted to do in my own particular way, (laughs) that worked. And then he started coming around, and then the teachers would say, you know, go to the front of the room, and I didn't want to go to the front of the room, and I would have practical panic attacks when he would come in, and I'd hide. And Balanchine would start even coming into the back of the studio if I wouldn't go forward. Whatever he saw, I can't say. What I do know is that I have an over-the-topness I've been told. (laughs) I don't do things in little ways. Mm. So I think what he saw was this person that, if let loose, was going to run. Stephanie was willing to go there when she danced. She didn't hold back. Balanchine had this thing he said to his dancers all the time. People quoted again and again. In the middle of rehearsal or the middle of class, if a dancer seemed not to be giving absolutely everything, he'd look at them and say, What are you saving for, dear? What are you going to lose? You're going to fall down. The floor's really close by. And so you fall down, you get up. We were trained for that. Risk all. Basically risk all. And then I got in, and I didn't know which way was up. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. 
We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I definitely loved drama. I loved heightened experiences, extremities, zigzagging. I don't I don't know that I loved it so much as I was drawn buy it to it and and embodied that as much as possible. <laughs> Stephanie got into the company when she was 18. It meant a life of extremes. It was glamorous and then we did a tour and then suddenly I was in and I was really in. It was really like quicksand. Being in meant Stephanie had an intense schedule. As a company member, you'd have morning class at 10 a.m., rehearsals all day, get ready for a performance, perform in the evening, and finally leave the theater at maybe 11 at night. On top of that, you'd never know your exact schedule until the evening before when it would be posted. So you can't make plans for your life outside the company. To be near the studio, all the dancers lived in the same area, a stretch of blocks on the Upper West Side that dancers called the ballet belt. Because... There is very little control of one's life in a company that size in terms of casting, scheduling. There is a feeling of lack of control and a lack of ability to make choices for oneself. Decisions about you are being made for you. And so what happened was I would lash out by going dancing, go out clubbing, sleep with someone, and staying up all night. That could be self-harming in certain ways, but it was a way to work out that energy of frustration that I was not getting to choose. I think that's a normal adolescent behavior, to tell you the truth. But my escapes were really physical venting. Really, really physical venting. That was a coping mechanism for me. It could feel like you lived or died by what Balanchine thought of you. A dancer named Barbara Walzak wrote about it. She says, I remember talking to him once when I must have been about 16. He said, You know, dear... I know you someday want to dance Swan Lake, but you know if you ever do Swan Lake, I will never come to see you, because you will be terrible. Barbara writes, I was absolutely destroyed. Still, Barbara felt she had to dance for Balanchine and not at another ballet company. Balanchine looked through you when he watched you dance, she said. He saw things no one else saw, and she says the feel of having him set the steps on you of the music, of the counts, of the kind of kinesthetic movement and quality, was addictive. That dancer, Barbara, danced with him for 14 years. When she was eventually let go, she says it was so wrenching she had a nervous breakdown. The reality was that even if you gave everything, you could be fired without warning and without explanation. You might hear it directly from someone other than Balanchine, that he decided it was time for you to leave. You might just get a pink slip in the mail. I could be in the wings or the studio and feel like 
phenomenally insecure. I would go home and cry and just feel that I couldn't possibly ever measure up. But the minute I was on stage, it felt like another animal entirely. I just felt very connected, very alive. I loved being on stage. I loved to dance. She loved feeling that she was doing something deeper, something important. And that was a feeling you had in the company. It was more than a job. You were buying into a philosophy, a way of life. There was a sense you were part of something sacred, like Balanchine was channeling something higher and turning it into steps in front of your eyes. That's what it felt like very frequently with Balanchine in the room. It really was. He was just like a funnel or a vessel. and Like divine ins- inspiration? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, for the observer, looking effortless and very graceful. Mm. I just really feel that I was a witness to and a participant in something quite unusual and rare in the world. Can you tell me about Balanchine's philosophy? Hmm. Just dance, dear. Don't think. What does that mean? I think it means a myriad of things. If I were being narrow or defensive, it would be just so that he could get everything precisely as he wanted it, and he didn't want the mind or the personal vantage point of a dancer to interfere with what he was looking for. And yet, I also see it as very zen. Don't clutter, don't get in your own way. Just dance, dear. Just dance, dear. Balanchine wanted his dancers to be in the moment completely, to live like the present was all they had, to believe that this moment was of utmost importance and in that way dance at the highest level. Balanchine was known for choreographing incredibly speedy movement in his ballets, It was something the dancers had to train for, and he drilled them on it incessantly. They had to learn to move faster than they ever had before. We had to get it into our bones, into our nervous system, because it's not a brain process. It's really like a trigger finger. He likened it very often to a horse when the gun goes off at a race. You have to be out of the gate when it starts not thinking about going out of the gate. You have to be ready. We would have classes with pas de bourree for a half hour. Oh my gosh. Practicing direction, speed, weight transfer, being super, super quick. And you get the thighs to get together faster. The back leg is almost the front leg before the front leg even gets a chance to start transferring weight. We could have 64 tondus, the speed of light, front side and back. And one, and two. And three, and four, and five, and you know, and then you could go one, two, three, four, done, and just go, and you'd have to do it. And if you're not doing it, somebody is. That's the other thing about the company. If you're not doing it, there's somebody to replace you. Stephanie learned that Balanchine might ask you to do just about anything in class, even things that seemed impossible. So, for example, let's say you're jumping. You're doing these little jumps in place, straight up into the air, switching your feet from front to back and back to front. That's called a changement. 
Then you start jumping higher, and you start beating your feet together while you're in the air. That's an entrechat. Then you add more beats, an entrechassis. All of this is normal. Usually you'd start these jumps by bending your knees a little. What's called a plie, a small knee bend. Usually you have a small little one and you practice your little beats and you land. But he's famous for giving what we call a grand plie into entre chassis. And that's a big knee bend, okay, in what we call fifth position. Instead of bending your knees a little, you crouch next to the floor in fifth position in a grand plie. Your legs are flattened to the sides and you're balancing on the balls of your feet. And from that almost torturous thigh-burning position, You're supposed to jump all the way up into the air. To three beats. Beating your feet together while you're in the air. And landing. He would do it out of these extreme positions just to see even if you had the volition to do it. Wow. It was also a test of, are you a patriot? Are you a citizen? Are you willing to do these unheard of things? Are you willing to do whatever I ask you to do? Set yourself beyond the margins of safety, and it might actually be possible. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm explaining to people that we're not exposed to this in that particular culture, I laugh at my former self because not only would you want to demonstrate something when he asked for it, you would show that you were excited about showing that you were showing. (laughs) You're showing your fervor, kind of. Exactly. You were demonstrating your fervor. It was layer on layer on layer of energy fervor volition. Yeah, it's like you have to demonstrate your passion for the art and your your reverence for it. Just being there is not enough. Mm -hmm. You have to really amplify it to let it be known in the visible world. (laughs) he would request things that could be almost undoable (laughs) and most of it was really challenging our willingness to risk it was really about risk and and passing through any kind of imagined limitations Mm. or real limitations doing the impossible Mm mm-hmm The dancers learned it was music first, choreography second, you third. The dancers were in service to the music and to ballet. To many in the audience, it was Balanchine who was the star. He stood in the wings every single performance. He was always in the front wing watching and waiting to be either surprised, entertained, intrigued, or otherwise, I suppose. But he was always in the wings, so we were always... Not, not only literally on our toes, but we were always aware of his part in our lives. Mm. And his part in your lives being what exactly? Ever-present. Yeah. Ever-observing, ever-present, and also realizing that we were, we were taking part in something that was his creation, that was run by his aesthetic 
and that the criteria was to be met to the absolute best of our ability in all moments. He was God in the theater. And in fact, I don't know if I told you that when the theater apparently was built, you know, we only had windows and very little sliver windows on the fourth floor in the offices. There are no windows otherwise, because basically we don't need windows because the outside world doesn't matter. We are not part of the outside world. Wow. It's separate from us, and we are removed from it. And once you go downstairs into the theater, enter through the stage entrance, and go into the studios, the dressing rooms, and the stage, there is no need for the outside world because we are removed from it and apart from it and in our own unique sphere. We had our own universe. The Turning is a production of Rococo Punch and iHeart Podcasts. It's written and produced by Aylan Lance Lesser and me. Our story editor is Emily Foreman. Mixing and sound design by James Trout. Jessica Carissa is our assistant producer. Andrea Aswahe is our digital producer. Fact-checking by Andrea Lopez Cruzado. Our executive producers are John Parati and Jessica Alpert at Rococo Punch, and Katrina Norvell and Nikki Etor at iHeart Podcasts. For photos and more details on the series, follow us on Instagram at Rococo Punch. And you can reach out via email, theturning at rococopunch.com. I'm Erica Lance. Thanks for listening. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 